This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Live Lit podcast. This is the podcast where whether you're a student, teacher, or a lifelong learner, we invite you to come join us on the island paradise in this week's introductory episode of Sir William Golding's Lord of the Flies. Okay, this music may make the episode feel cooler than it actually is. Well, yeah, it might, but hopefully it communicates the feeling of the book. Does to me. If you've listened to us before, by now you know that we're high school English, history, and psychology teachers from Memphis, Tennessee. We teach and have taught high school students at every end and all ages of the academic spectrum, from advanced placement in seniors to freshman English. If you're listening to this podcast from other parts of the world, you may or may not know that in the United States, we start our school year in August. So hopefully students are gearing up for a new round of learning. So true. Parents everywhere purchasing notebooks, pencils, new shoes. You know, that's one big difference between where I teach and you teach, Gary. Gary teaches at a private school and sensibly, like most schools around the world, They wear uniforms there. I love that. I love the idea of a drama-free environment. At my school, our year is consumed with endless arguments about what is appropriate or inappropriate. Too long, too short, holes in jeans, nose rings, tattoos, all of this is debated. Well, interestingly enough, I do remember those public school dramas, and it is in the world of the supposedly highly disciplined world of private school life that William Golding chooses to set up his first and most well-known novel, Lord of the Flies. 
Indeed. And I'm not sure we did this on purpose. Well, I know we didn't. But this is our third book in a row to be published in the 1950s. His book, or Lord of the Flies, was published in 1954. That's only one year after Fahrenheit 451 and only five years before Raisin in the Sun. However, Lord of the Flies was published, as we say, on the other side of the pond, or in plain English, Golding is British, not American. And what an interesting time to be English. Golding was born in Cornwall, England in 1911. Cornwall is in southwest England on the coast. And although not a beach destination like Florida or Rio de Janeiro or Whitehaven Beach in Australia, its coastline is full of cliffs and parts of it experiences lots of harsh winds, while in other places there are inlets that are sheltered and even have a few beaches. And I mention this only because there's a lot of geographical description in Lord of the Flies. And parts of the description of the rougher parts of the island in Lord of the Flies feel a lot like the descriptions that we read when we read about Cornwall, England, although I've never been fortunate enough to visit. Me neither. Uh, His father was a science teacher at the Marlborough School And Golding actually went to Oxford with the intent of studying science like his father. However, at Oxford, he got interested in literature. And, of course, that changed his destiny forever. He left (laughs) before getting a degree. But I think years later, he went back and did uh, finish out an education degree. But getting back to your point about the water and the coastline, uh, Golding had a lot of fascination and really a love for the water. He was a small boat sailor and almost died once um, boating off the Channel Islands. Um, Most notably though, he served in the Royal Navy during World War II and even commanded a rocket ship that operated close to the beaches on the famous D-Day invasion. Which is pretty impressive. Now, um, this book being published in 1954 parallels the growth of a fairly new field of social psychology that emerged right after World War II during the 1940s and 1950s. There was a couple of prominent social psychologists named Kurt Lewin and Leon Fessinger, and uh, they really started to refine and apply the experimental approach to studying behavior, and they created social psychology as a, as a real scientific discipline. And uh, sometimes Lewin is referred to as the father of social psychology because of his developments. Now, Social psychology is different because psychology normally focuses on the behavior of the individual and all the processes that affect the individual. Social psychology is very much uh, focused on the power of the group and the power of conformity. And that's interesting because social psychology as a field was a direct reaction to World War II. And the major fascist totalitarian regimes in Germany, Italy, and the Soviet Union people in the Western world became fascinated with how people became so obedient and conformed in societies that were difficult post-World War II. Well, that's understandable. If you think about all the atrocities that were committed during World War II, you'd have to stare at yourself, obviously, in the face of so much death and ask that question. Well, and those were all the same ideas that came out of the Nuremberg trials in post-World War II Germany. They're trying to get to the core of, well, that's what social psychologists became fascinated with. Why did people follow orders directly against humanity? And interestingly enough, 
Golding is going to dig way deep into the human psyche and ask a lot of the same questions that social psychologists were asking in that brand new field at the time he was writing his book. Now, uh, most of Golding's biographers tend to place his experiences in World War II at the heart of what really set him up on this philosophical, philosophical pursuit that was to characterize all of his writings and really give him this distinctive mark on literature, so much so that he was ultimately awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1983. And according to the Nobel Committee, in the speech given at his awards presentation, Golding, this was said about him, has a very keen sight and sharp pen when it comes to the power of evil and baseness in human beings. He often chooses his themes in the framework for his stories from the world of the sea or from other challenging situations in which odd people are tempted to reach beyond their limits, thereby being bared to the very marrow. Well, that's a very eloquent way of putting what he's trying to do. Although Golding himself stated that this darkness basically defines his whole life, not just during his writing period, but he talks about being obsessed or at least being observant about this darkness at a much earlier age. When you read his biography, he reminisces about being haunted with the terror and darkness, terror and indescribable terror made objective in the cellars of his 14th century home. And of course, there was a graveyard right next door that he lived by. He strangely connects his mother's life which she described as full of storm after the sinking of the Titanic that occurred in 1912. He also connected it to the fact that he grew up so close to Stonehenge, he felt some sort of mystery and symbolism, I guess, I don't know, pervading his very essence. Hmm. It sounds like it added up to a lot of anxiety in the home growing up. Or at least darkness. But I understand about those... Sellers, my grandmother had a basement that freaked me out kind of the same way. <laughs> yes. Well, um, although that's true, there's no doubt from Golding's own profession that it was the war that made him see not only what man in general was capable of, but of what he himself was capable of. And he does come across as kind of dark and tormented, to be honest. Uh, he said about himself, I must say that anyone who moved through those years without understanding that man produces evil as a bee produces honey must have been blind or wrong in the head. John Kerry wrote the first authorized biography of Golding and really describes him as a creative madman, um, not really likable, honestly. And Golding seems really open and honest about his general stodginess and his snobbery and his tormented and sometimes even abusive behaviors, it appears to me. Uh, he even relates an incident while drunk when he wakes up in the middle of the night panicked and in turn he dismembers a Bob Dylan puppet because he thought it was Satan. So, which is odd. Uh, I well, hope Bob another, Dylan was okay afterwards. Well, he survived and went on to win his own Nobel Prize, didn't Oh, he? yes, right. <laughs> So he was afraid of the dark and he struggled with nightmares his entire life, according to even his own daughter. So a general mess of a man. Yeah, it's not surprising that a man so troubled with the constitution of a human would spend really his whole career exploring this complicated question without really even giving us a true answer. He just 
kept uncovering layer upon layer of what human beings are really made of. And to be honest, compared to a man like Langston Hughes or Ray Bradbury, he didn't really produce a lot of work. He published two books of poetry that nobody can really find anymore. He didn't like his own poetry. He probably burnt them knowing him, but I don't know. Uh, He said they weren't that great. Uh, He said he couldn't write poetry because it didn't sound good. And I kind of think that might be true because his writings don't have the sound quality like you hear Langston Hughes Mm. do. It's very different. But anyway, that's to say... He only wrote 12 novels. He wrote a play and a travel book about Egypt and some essays, and that's it. And he was not fond of Lord of the Flies, which was by far his his biggest success. And, um, and Lord of the Flies is kind of the first exploration of this question about what humans are made up of. It's kind of golding-like and even ironic that at the end of his life, he actually claimed to abhor the book that made him famous, which to me is... He's stodgy. Yeah, very, yeah. I almost said very British, but I don't want to offend any (laughs) British listeners. And it is by far the most read of all of his books, a fact that irritated him his entire life. He called it crude and boring, which of course it is neither. And we could talk about Golden for an entire episode because he's very fascinating, but we do need to move on. But I do think it's interesting to point out that one more thing about his personal life that really informs his works especially Lord of the Flies, and that is his religious background. Um, Golding's father was an adamant atheist and raised his son to be an atheist. However, Golding did not hold to this, and we don't know, but perhaps his studies of the inner world of man gave him a real insight in the idea that man was absolutely more than matter or electrical currents or biological impulses. Golding was clearly aware and makes an important point, which we're going to see right off in the beginning of Lord of the Flies, that man possesses consciousness. And even in his most basic state, which is what he creates at the beginning of this book, man has consciousness. He's aware of himself. He's aware of the world around him. And he has this full ability to make choices of a moral nature. And that seems to be what kind of scared him about being a person and about being himself. Uh, Golding uh, claimed to be a Christian, but he really isn't like any Christian you might meet anywhere else. He was never a member of an organized church, and his uh, books don't really reflect a theology that we would consider to be orthodox. He's definitely not like C.S. Lewis or or Tolkien Mm -hmm. or any of these Christian theologians that were using literature as a way to um, explore faith. He doesn't write like that at all, but he does kind of seem to believe in what the Christians would term a fall of sorts, but in Lord of the Flies, it's not the same kind of fall that you see in the Genesis story, and not all the boys are the same. Some of the boys seem to be good and some not. Uh, In a world there is that's not all evil, man has the ability to murder but there's an innocence that pervades all the children really to the end. It's, it's never completely lost. And although he leans very heavily on archetypes, and we'll talk about this in later episodes, this story is surprisingly complex for a simple tale. And I think it's the simple tale that makes students want to read it in school because it's fun to read, but it's very layered. Yes, it is. And I'm glad you used the word simple because in many ways, especially after reading 
the the complex text of Hansberry or Hawthorne, this story actually felt very simple to me. And the characters seem more flat. The setting seems more unrealistic. And so I wondered, what's that about? And so my question to you is, what's the purpose of making the characters so simple? Well, that's a, a really great question. And to understand the book, that's one thing that you really need to have clear in your mind is Golding totally immersed himself in mythology. And it's looking at this book as a work of mythology it's really going to understand what he's trying to create. He was especially interested in Greek mythology, although it's clear there is a strong biblical reference and undertone throughout the story. He devoted a lot of time to studying Euripides' play Bacchae or Bacchae. I'm, I'm well, let's sure. go with Bacchae. <laughs> and it's that book that really influences the Lord of the Flies. And I'm not an expert really on that book to be honest uh, but and I don't really want to summarize the book but bottom line is in that particular play there are two gods Dionysus who's the god of animal potency and this is important because Dionysus inspires frenzy and it gets people worked up all the way up to human sacrifice and on the other side there's the god Apollo now, Apollo personifies the civilizing arts, healing, poetry, music, law, order, those kind of things. So in the book, Bacchae, um, these two gods are at odds. And in that sense, that's the story. That's the work. So we have our yin and yang. I guess. Uh, it's this dichotomy that's developed uh, in this book in a very mythological sense. So don't read this book looking for realism. If you do... You're going to get frustrated. It kind of reminds me of, uh, I was watching um, one of these movies, a 007 movie, and I said, that's so unrealistic. And the person I was sitting with is, shut up. You won't enjoy it if that's how you think. And that's the <laughs> same concept. Well, I remember learning the whole concept of willing suspension of reality. And I thought, oh, okay, great concept. You had to do that. But, but unlike, you know, the Bond books or the Bond movies, that their whole point is just to be so fun he makes you suspend that kind of realism for the purpose of really getting to inner truth, which is another thing altogether. So you want to think of it as Golding as being his own writer of mythology. Think of it as the Odyssey or the Iliad. And if you do, then, then it'll communicate exactly what it is that he's trying to say. And really, I'm not sure he's trying to say anything. He's trying to ask some very fundamental questions, and he wants the reader to really ask those questions about himself. And I don't know, we can talk about this later, if he really ever gives us a definitive answer. All right, having said that, is there anything else we need to talk about before we open up the book and get to page one? Well, first of all, I want to go back to what you said about reading this as mythology. Very helpful to me uh, to have that insight and to follow that as a rule. Because again, like when I, in my reading, I went thought he spends the vast majority of his time describing the environment. And the, the dialogue between the characters is very direct and short and not complicated. So no, it's not nuanced. No, no nuances at all. You're not looking for shades of character development and... These, uh, these people are simple, and to me, it's kind of like, uh, first of all, these are children. Well, there's a reason that there's children, and, uh, well, there's a couple of reasons that there's children. One of them is the fact of 
his idea of even writing the book was based on a children's book. Which which is very fascinating to find out um, that this is actually, Lord of the Flies is a parody of another children's book called The Coral Island that was published in 1857. It was a very, very popular children's classic in England. And in that book, there are children shipwrecked on the island. And the three main characters, interestingly enough, are named Ralph, Jack, and Peter. And what's fascinating about the story is everything goes swimmingly and wonderful for them on the island. Um, the lads, it says right here, the lads live in uninterrupted harmony and happiness, presumably without the after effects of even original sin. And then it goes on to say they encountered cannibals, uh, but those natives eventually will embrace Christianity and all is well. And so, uh, you know, what we have now is Golding, who would read this book to students at times, and with his experience of World War II, could no longer stomach the um, the utopian view of this of this very fabled and loved children's book. And so, Lord of the Flies is going to be a parody, and the idea of a parody is that it's an it's an imitation. It's a it's imitation of a deliberate style. Um, not always used for humor, though. And it's also a satire, which is designed to expose human, a human folly or a human vice. And so he's going to really use the, the book, The Coral Island, and then use that style and, and use um, parody and satire to make his point. Well, that's, I think, the obvious, obvious take. I mean, you don't write books and name the characters, the three main characters of a different book that's popular at the time without making a deliberate connection. But the other greater point, I think, or at least makes it a lot easier to understand, is that these are children, and we expect them to some degree uh, to be innocent. And we'll talk about that here. Are you ready to get started in reading the book and kind of going through the first few pages? Yes, let's jump into the beginning of it. All right, I want to read just the first four sentences uh, to you word for word because he also introduces his main idea in the first four sentences and please reiterate that rule for our listeners about the authors well authors in general tell you the whole story in the first few sentences of their book maybe not the plot but what they're intending to say and, okay. and he he does it like the rest of them it says this the boy with fair hair lowered himself down the last few feet of rock and began to pick his way towards the lagoon Though he had taken off his school sweater and trailed it now from one hand, his gray shirt stuck to him and his hair was plastered to his forehead. All round him, the long scar smashed into the jungle was a bath of heat. All right, here's what I want us to notice. We have a boy. He's a, a, a child, and he says he's fair head. He has fair hair. Now, fair, in this sense, we're talking about being blonde, which is as close as you're going to get in hair color to gold, which is the color of majesty. So this particular kid, we're going to introduce this innocent, kingly character. And he's coming here, and he's stripping off his school sweater. So all of his culture, all of the rules that have governed his life are now going to fall away. And he's being introduced into a into a natural environment, into a pristine environment. But there's a long scar. 
So the word scar really is, is what's supposed to catch your attention because it doesn't make sense. When I first read this, I looked it up. I said, is there another meaning for scar than what I know? Because why would you have a scar? A scar of what? And the idea that he's trying to introduce, and this is where we're going to get our tale, is we have this beautiful, pristine location, and then man is going to be introduced. And although we think of man, in this case, even the most kingly and beautiful of us is a scar, and this scar is going to be this introduction of a rip, a crash, man entering into this environment and in some ways wrecking it. And I really think that's kind of the direction that we're supposed to go. And would there be any biblical analogy of any kind there? Well, for sure. (laughs) I mean, not just biblical, but you really can't miss it. And of course, talk about... I mean, I think it, it, it gets a little bit too much, but the description of nature, I mean, it's so colorful. The You have a bird, and it's red and yellow, and it's flashing, and it's crying, and you have the pattering of rain, but it's not the cruel rain of a storm. It's the life-giving rain ching, 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 of, of the pattering. <laughs> it's, it, it's not bothering them. It's, it's soothing them almost. And, of course, they have a few thorns, but it's not... Uh, it's not too terribly awful. In fact, you see words like delight and um, enchantment and all these, uh, there's palm trees and it's just a really, truly beautiful place. Now, I like nature like everybody else. I don't want to sound like an unnatural person, but being lost in nature is not this. This is very no, definitely unrealistic. It is. It is very unrealistic. And I, I would like to point this out too. You always have to be careful of paradise because even uh, on the island of Molokai in Hawaii, they have a leper colony. So paradise is not always what it may seem to be. Well, let me just say, neither are jungles. You know, I've been up to the Amazon and it's beautiful from the airplane, but you talk about a place that is very dangerous. I mean, I've had two family members almost not come out of that thing. I mean, you get lost in a minute and they have these snakes and they have bugs that are gigantic and it is in no way an enchanting experience as beautiful and natural as it truly is. Nature is a beast. Well, and in the beginning of the book, we have these boys, uh, well, at least Ralph in the beginning, jubilantly exalting in this new place. And he looks at this beautiful island and he just says, it's ours. Well, that's not what a group of 12-year-old boys would do who had just survived a plane crash, who have just escaped an atomic war, which is part of the backstory that's going on here. We're going to find out as things go forward. So these boys are really not acting at all uh, like you would if this were a real-life situation. No, and neither is the environment. I mean, this environment provides for them, and I think that's really maybe the point. The environment is not the problem. They get, they have plentiful fruit. They never run out of food, really, the whole time they're there. So nature is not an antagonist, and, and sometimes it is. There's a lot of books that it's mm-hmm. the antagonist. But in this case, it is very clear from the very, very beginning that nature is our friend. It's not going to create a problem for us, although they will at times perceive something dangerous in nature. We will we will find out that it's not nature yeah. at all that has ever been the enemy. So we have this beautiful, uh, you know, Disney 
quality nature scene that's got you know places to swim and you can see down to the bottom and there's the beautiful fish and everything is perfect and we have the introduction of these two kids um, who of course like you said have survived an atomic war and don't seem terribly stressed about it and a plane crash <laughs> on top of that yeah there is that <laughs> yes uh, and why I'm bringing this up I'm not going to bring out these mischaracterations of 12-year-old boys because I'm trying to point out that Golding is wrong. We're trying to point out a literary technique because Golding uses children in the story the same way that Orwell uses animals in Animal Farm. They're not real, uh, and they serve the purpose of telling a point of view because one of the first things Ralph is going to do in opening pages is strip off all of his clothes and run around naked. Well, I can tell you right now, and when you have a gym class full of 7th to 8th grade boys, they don't do stuff like that. No, but the idea is they had left a very structured, law-abiding environment. So you have like the British schoolboy where everything is run in order. It's very organized. It's according to the clock. And so when Ralph gets to this island with no clock and no adults and no rules, he's he's attracted to this. He's attracted to the what he thinks is chaos yes. and freedom. Mm-hmm. And so you see this expression of "yoo-hoo, I'm, I'm, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free," and and he's going to run around and really kind of be self-absorbed in, in in many many ways. Which again would not be the realistic reaction of a child in this environment. But the point being, the Golding is is exaggerating this to build this character to say what he wants him to say. No, and and we're talking about Ralph, and and he is he's twelve years old. But he's um, a beautiful kid. It says you could have, he might have been a boxer because he had wide shoulders and he had uh, uh, just, they call him beautiful. He had a golden body. And we're introduced to him uh, first. His, he has got good pedigree, he, pedigree, I might say. Excuse me. <laughs> yes. Uh, he, ha- he came from a good family. His father had a very respectable job. A commander in the Navy. Yes, and and he has this sense of security that there's going to be somebody to take care of me. I don't have to. I don't. He has no concern for his well being. He clearly understands that someone's going to come along and rescue him. As they always have done. As they always have done. He's lived in a world where somebody has always provided. Uh, so why not here? Even though there's no reason to think it would. And we see this contrasted with the second character, who we call. Piggy, which brings me to this thing about names. In this book, names uh, matter. Ralph's name is an Anglo-Saxon name. That means counsel. And poor Piggy. (laughs) What does Piggy mean? It means Piggy. Oh, okay. That's not too complicated. (laughs) No, but pigs are intelligent creatures. Uh, They get picked on, I guess. I don't know if they get picked on in, in nature, but if someone calls you Piggy, it's not because they think you're so sexy. No, it's not a compliment. No. And so, uh, but Piggy's different than Ralph. He had a different background. He has a different, first of all, he's physically uglier. He's fat and he has asthma. And Ralph, of course. very bad vision. Yes, he has bad vision. He has to wear glasses and he has terrible grammar. So you see that he doesn't come from the social strata uh, that Ralph does. Although we don't know anything about his background except the fact that his parents had died 
and he was living uh, with relatives. And so he has tragedy in his background. He has a, a much more realistic of what the world really is about. And it's this sense that we're going to see these two guys kind of contrast. Right. We have the, the innocence of Ralph, and by innocence we mean unaware, self-unawareness of how dangerous the world can be. And that's contrasted very heavily with Piggy, who has suffered a great deal and is very aware and very pragmatic. Yes, Piggy knows about, you know, danger, about danger, about time. Ralph doesn't even seem to think about it. I mean, he just he just glides in and out and this unconsciousness of this. He's not really aware of, of what could possibly happen. And Piggy, you know, he says, didn't you hear what the pilot said about an atom bomb? They're all dead. He understands death. He says, nobody don't know we're here. Your dad don't know. Nobody don't know. And that's after Ralph had said, my dad will come and get us, basically. Yeah. So in this, and and I don't think Ralph even heard that because he Mm -hmm. just kind of breathes on by it. And and it's it's in that sense that um, they kind of start to explore the island. Okay, so having met the characters. I think that's a good spot for us to stop today. I hope you enjoyed today's introduction. And if you liked being with us, then please hit subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Instagram and check out our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. On our website, you'll find all kind of helpful teacher resources for the books that we're covering uh, through this podcast. So come along for the ride. And again, please subscribe and follow us. Peace out. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.